You're listening to Contains Moderate Peril, an independent podcast about gaming, movies, and popular culture. Written and presented by Roger Edwards. Hello and welcome to Contains Moderate Peril, episode number 179. I'm your host, Roger Edwards. Joining me on the show are Brian. Hello! Chris, a.k.a. Wolfie. Greetings and hello. And Hannah, a.k.a. Jadia. Hello. We shall be talking over the next hour or so about the Lotro Legendary servers. Is there a renaissance in the Lotro community at the moment? We'll also be discussing anime. Specifically, where to start if you're new to the genre. We'll also be looking at the state of fandom, as 2018 seems to have been a somewhat tumultuous year. And finally, we have a little surprise, which basically means I had some footage left over from a previous show that I wanted to use. More on that later. But as ever, you can see there's a lot to cover, so without further ado, cue Brian. Let's dive right in. I'm rusty, man. My own catchphrase, and I can't even say it right. So, it was just a little over two weeks ago that Standing Stone Games decided to launch their legendary server. For those people who may not be aware of what exactly the legendary server is, it's just a fancy name for a progression server. Effectively, Anor, which is the new server, is running content that is just from level 1 to 50 from Lotro. Effectively, you've got access to the Shadow of Angmar. However, very important clarification, this is not the game as it was in 2007. This is the Shadows of Angmar, but with the ongoing changes that have been made to the game over the last decade plus. So you have the modern skills tree. You are able to access your mount. There is a mini-map and quest trackers, which there wasn't in the game initially when it launched in 2007. So this is not like the WoW Classic server, but it is effectively a clean start, um, an opportunity to people to start a new character and play through the initial 50 levels and more to the point have access to the community there was there's a greater volume of players available broadly at a similar standing therefore grouping and doing group content isn't allegedly an issue and I must admit from my experience it's not let it suffice to say that the launch day was Problematic, purely due to the volume of people, and it wasn't long before Standing Stone Games decided to open up a second legendary server, which is called Ithel. It seems to have been very well received. Nostalgia is a big thing, and so are progression servers at the moment. They certainly seem to be flavour of the month. Brian, what do you make of this? Because you weren't even initially aware that they'd done this. Curse you for letting me know about this. (laughs) Yeah, it's an interesting idea. I don't know if the execution is all that great, but we can talk about playing it a little bit. Um, but I can see the appeal, you know, the 
the idea of going back and experiencing the game the way it was maybe a decade ago, you know, when you first started it or whatever is interesting. And um, for me, it's not having as much overhead going into the game. So in other words, instead of having a level cap of whatever it is now, um, 120, uh, you have a level cap of 50, which just seems much more achievable. Yeah. So that's primarily my interest in it at this point. I think that is a very important point. If someone starts playing Lotro from scratch and logs into one of the established servers, they see this immense long-term population that is entrenched and got multiple alts at 120 or at the very least at 115. And that seems so far off to the new player. And there is potentially so much content between them and their friends I can see why people would just say this golf is immense. I cannot do this. But the, the appeal of a progression server, these legendary servers, it's, like you say, 50 is achievable. In fact, it is very achievable because there were people within a matter of days that had hit the level cap. You know, if that's the way they want to play, fair Fair enough. You do what suits you. But um, I think it's this opportunity of a fresh start to have access to other players and to just generally not be weighed down by the the excessive bloat that you have in the game at level cap of 120, I think it's very, very appealing for people. And I must admit, I've seen a good many lapsed players return to the game and seen a lot of familiar faces suddenly pop up in my timeline. It's like, wow, you're playing this again. Are you great? There's certainly a lot of people in the game, in my experience, um, the starter area that I'm in is very full of players. I just wonder how long this is going to last. You know, it's the new shiny right now. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. I think it's it's perfectly conceivable that they set up an overflow server, Ithel, to deal with people initially. I, I can see maybe in the months ahead, maybe merging these two uh, progression servers into a single one but certainly it's 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 still very busy two and a half weeks on you don't have the log on queues which is preferable but um it's just nice to see people around particularly when you go to an area like Bree it's supposed to be a thriving town it's nice to actually see other players there going about their business other practical benefits are this is a new server the economy on that server is starting from scratch. So people are crafting. People are then selling surplus gear. The gear is on sale at what I consider to be realistic prices. There's not an excess of gold in this community as of yet in this point. And I I think that's, again, very reassuring, the fact that if you want to craft, fine. If you don't, you can use the auction house. The auction house hasn't become this sort of anomalous weird situation where everything is just subject to hyperinflation. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I'm actually still in the starting area, so I haven't looked at the auction house yet. But um, I will say it's a different mindset to start out without all of the stuff that that I've accumulated over the years because you don't have access to your bank Mm -hmm. and you start at zero gold. And um, whenever I've re-rolled alts in the past, you know, you can just load them up with stuff and craft stuff for them on your max level characters and you can't do that right now so it's it's kind of playing the game 
in some respects the way it used to be, which is fairly interesting. Um, I'm not used to hitting those kind of limitations in that game for a long time. So that's been kind of challenging and kind of fun. Indeed. I mean, just to clarify, some of the things that you have bought in the past, if you've bought an expansion, that is server-wide. So the, 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 the cosmetic bling and little trinkets that you get when you buy an expansion pack, they are available to your new alts on the legendary server. So you'll, you'll be able to access some cosmetic outfits and certain mounts. But things like mithril coins, things like your barter wallet with your supply of um, skirmish points that you've built up over the years, they are not available on this new server, which is very, very good because then it's a level playing field, as you say. People can't instantly bloat themselves out or tool themselves up so they're extra tonky compared to other players. And I think it's this equitable environment which is part of the appeal. Certainly the other thing that I've noticed, broadly speaking, is... As it's VIP only, you have to have an ongoing subscription to access the legendary server. It's really only attracted people who are serious about it. So, yes, World Chat's had a few idiots. World Chat is always an idiot magnet. But by and large, the standard of behavior that I've encountered so far has been good. Yeah, first thing I did was turned off all the chat channels, so I have no (laughs) idea. Yeah, I must admit, it makes the world a lot easier, isn't it? Just to turn off looking for fellowship, turn off trade, turn off world chat. I, I, I loaded my UI from my main character, and then you have to do, like, keybinds apparently don't carry over or something, or because I reinstalled the game or whatever. Um, circling back, though, to the other thing, I kind of think it was a mistake to have access to all of those things because when I loaded onto my new character and I ended up buying the, what is it, the High Elves? Oh, yes. Um, I decided I wanted a High Elf Guardian to play something different, and I had enough, uh, I was going to say Turbine Points, Lotro Points, to buy it, and it just went on sale this past week. So I did that, and then I ended up having in my bag, not only do I have 10, 10 years' worth of anniversary gifts to open, um, and all these various things I've gotten from the expansions, but I had four amounts in there. And then one of the gifts I got was the writing skill that takes me up to two or three levels of writing skill and all this. So as soon as I hit, I think it was level five or six, I'm riding around on some Uber mount. And what's the point? Now I've got a mount I'm going to use the rest of the game. You know, there, there was nothing for me to achieve or attain. So that, that kind of bummed me out a little bit. I can see the pros and cons of having access to your mount so quickly. Lotro, particularly in the early levels of the game, which are obviously the oldest parts of the game, seems to delight in sending your character backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, and it can get a bit annoying at times. So having access to a mount does ease that inconvenience. But I also remember that it used to be fun that you didn't get your mountain into a certain period into the game certainly at start of of Lotro back in 2007 when the game launched uh, you didn't get your first mountain until you were level 30 if memory serves and then it cost you quite a ton of gold and then you had to do this really pain in the backside quest that had you riding all over the place like a lunatic yeah I'm I'm actually preferring to run around right now because the game is so laggy and hitchy, shocker, that I can barely ride. 
So it's easier for me to run around because it seems to, um, the game seems to respond better to it. Yes, yes, indeed. And the other thing that I've noticed is because certain areas have quite a dense player population, you get quite a lot of phasing and you get quite a lot of loading screens in places where you usually don't expect loading screens because you're just effectively being ditched into a specific phase. But hey, if that's what they need to do to make the things, you know, make the game functional, so be it. So here's a question, Brian. Did you use this as an opportunity to actually roll an alt of a kind that you haven't done before? Yeah. I I had started playing a Guardian a few years ago. I think we talked about it on the podcast. And I didn't get very far with it. And like I said, I saw the high elves and I thought, oh, that's kind of neat, you know. And then I always play ranged and I thought I could easily roll a, you know, a hunter or something along those lines. But no, let's try a guardian. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. It is actually because one of the first things I did once I got into the game was create a contains moderate peril kinship. Not for any particular long-term goals, but just to have a, a little banner to, to group people under thought it'd be fun and um the first thing i did was roll a lore master because i know a lore master inside out and i got it to about level 14 and i just thought i know this and what's more it's a human lore master so i'm playing through archet and Bree, so i know all those storylines inside out i'll do something different so i ended up rolling not a high elf just a regular elf guardian and i must admit i really like the style of play i like being a, a red line tank and just sitting there and taking all the damage and then cutting everyone down with a double-handed weapon it it's it's nice it makes a change so i i ended up transferring the um, kinship leadership to this new character that i've created and funnily enough several other people have also decided that their experimentation with a new class will be a guardian so apparently there's a shortage of them that's funny because I'm still using a uh, sword and board right now, so maybe I'll have to go to two hand. Um, I'm not so sure about that, but uh, I looked up some kind of build, you know, that's for survivability. I, I I will say I'm very jealous because I was I was watching I was watching a ranger kill wolves, and I'm trying to do the, the deeds as I go, and it takes me a long time to kill a wolf. Yeah. And I watch this dude walk up in just three shots and it's dead like I used to do. And there's, I, I kind of long for that, right? That having that, that sheer power. But I also feel like if I get 10 wolves on me, I'm going to survive. Yes. And, you know, as the other class, I probably wouldn't without a lot of running around or hitting cooldown. So um, I'll tell you, I don't know if you notice this. So guardians get the bow skill. Yes at level actually they get access to bows at level seven or eight but you can't get the skill until the following level did you notice that well like it didn't match up i i didn't notice it i didn't cotton on to the using the bow until a little later than that so that is an yeah I, I was I, I was waiting for that based upon my last experience because that's a great way to because everybody was tagging stuff before i got to it like <laughs> i'm running up to things and they're just shooting it out from under me. And if I can't get a swing on it, you don't get credit, you know, even though it's shared tagging. So I knew the bow was coming and I actually had a bow in my inventory. I got it from a quest and sure enough, at, I think it was level eight or something or seven. I was able to equip the bow, but I didn't have the skill to shoot the bow. 
And then the next level that showed up. And I thought that's kind of a mismatch there, right? Mm. A bug to be ironed out. And as uh, with yeah, the game, or just an inattention to detail, I think. But I must admit, I do find that bow resolves a lot of issues because, like you say, ranged classes just tag everything and yep. burn them down quickly. And at least with a bow, you too can tag them and then at least, you know, some of the time log that as a kill. So it's uh, it's an interesting situation. But I um, must admit, I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying doing something different. I like the fact that it's going to be no more than level 50. So you're not going to get overwhelmed with skills because this is the situation I have now when I'm at level 120 on the other server is I've just got this sea of icons. Some are passive skills, some are, are straightforward skills, combat skills, some are debuffs. Then you've got all your pets if you're a lore master. And... I'm a 50, nearly 51-year-old man. <laughs> I'm not as quick as I used to be. But at the moment, I think I'm what? I'm level 17 on the legendary server. I've got about seven, eight skills in front of me. I can cope with that. That's a lot like Elder Scrolls or Guild Wars, where you just have a, a specific amount and you can focus on them, and etc. I, I think this is going to be one of the good things about the legendary server that possibly might be compromised later on when they release Moria and you then get a further increase in level cap and naturally a further increase in skills. Yeah, I was kind of looking ahead at the skills and there's quite a few in there that we're going to gain. Um, and some of them are those reactive skills, you know, so you have to crit or parry or something before you can do one thing or dodge or I don't know what all it is. And I, I'm not... I don't like those kind of skills. Mm -hmm. um, that's why I didn't like the burglar as much in Lotro because, um, you know, you would have a crit chain for a burglar yeah. where you might have four or five skills you could use, but everyone depended upon the other one doing something. Yeah. Um, and I, I just favor things a little bit simpler, but like I said, I just, I feel like right now and I'm only level 10 or 11, but I can run through that landscape or walk through it and not, nothing can kill me, which is kind of fun. You know, it's pretty squishy as a, as a ranger, so. Stepping back from the actual legendary server itself and looking at the bigger picture, this has once again created a bit of a buzz around Lotro, which is obviously what Standing Stone Games was hoping for. It was round about this time in 2016 that the announcement came out the blue that Standing Stone Games were effectively taking over the running of Lotro. They had extracted themselves from Turbine. So that was sort of a bit of a surprise. And then, broadly speaking, this time in 2017, that you had the launch of the Mordor expansion, which took the game in quite a different direction, bearing in mind it's the first time they've written story content that is not directly tied to the Lord of the Rings. It's more Lord of the Rings appendices. And now this time... Again, broadly a year on, you've got the legendary servers. They they announced them quite quickly, launched them quite quickly, and they seem to have, again, bolstered public opinion of the game. Would it be going too far to say there's a bit of a Lotro renaissance at the moment, or do you just think it's just a group of already converted people just getting nostalgic? The second thing. <laughs> 
it is though bringing in new blood or at least bringing laps players back purely because I'm seeing quite a lot of names on my friends list suddenly log back in and it's like bless my soul you haven't logged in for four years yeah and, and that's really neat and all but there's a fundamental flaw in this whole plan mm-hmm. and that is that we're all playing new characters on a separate server so let's say you get invested in your guardian right yep and you think, oh man, that's, I just love this thing. And they, you know, every four months, like they're talking about, they're going to release a new expansion and you go along with it. And you eventually you're going to end up at level cap. And then you're going to have a lore master on one server that you've invested a decade of your life in. And you're going to have this new guardian on another server that, and you can't transfer yeah. from this server to your old server, at least at this point. So now you've got two separate characters you're playing on two completely separate servers with two completely separate economies. Now what? Yeah, it does present some problems. Certainly at this moment in time, my play style for Lotro has always been on the main server on Laurelin, where my level 120 lore master is, the lore master character that I created in 2008. I play through new content Whenever it's released, I usually tend to clear it. I then tend to tweak my character, pick up some extra gear, do some extra deeds, optimize as much as I can. And then if the only option left to me is then to run lots of endgame content, I tend to drift away because I don't mind doing the odd instance and the odd raid every now and then, but I don't want to make that my focus. It's too complicated a schedule. It's, It's too logistically difficult for me to manage. So I have very fixed bursts of Lotro. So at the moment, I've not got a great deal to do with my 120. I've written on the blog about how I've optimized it. So now the the legendary server fills the gap where I'd usually drift off to play another game, single player game, or maybe another MMO. I'm still playing some permutation of Lotro. So maybe it it works relatively well for me. But yeah, I can see there being issues for other people. Um, the other thing is, does a progression server fall on its ass and die the moment people lose interest and vanish? Because it's it's the accessibility to other people, the grouping and the economy that other players generate. That seems to be the fundamental selling point. And Moria is the sort of expansion that really splits Lotro player opinion. Some people love it. Some people can't stand it. Yeah, and people are going to fall off over time. And then here's the thing. So let's project forward a year. So a year we're into the probably, what, the third expansion, right? Maybe fourth. Mm-hmm. And then those new players are now looking at a level cap of, you know, 80 or 90 or something like that, right? Are you going to start playing Lotro again when you have that much more of a level cap? So the question is, do they keep releasing progression servers all the time to capture these new players? Because right now it seems like I can hit 50 achievably. You know, they've nerfed the um, experience, it looks like, a little bit. So it takes longer to level, which I think was smart. And it feels good right now. You know, I'm not blasting through levels. I'm taking my time and doing things because I feel like I can. Um, but let's say, you know, you had told me a year from now, hey, Brian, we've got this progression server, but the level caps, you know, 90, 95, 85, whatever. I might, I might be like, yeah, that just seems like I might as well just play the regular game at that point. 
And the other issue I have with it, by the way, so I'm running around in the landscape and killing my stuff and doing my starter quests. And then I realize that not only do I have the deeds to work on and, you know, so to get the traits and all that, but I've got my skill tree. Yes. And I had points earned in my skill tree. And I'm like, I feel really overpowered with this skill tree, to be honest with you, because it wasn't there originally in the game. And I'm like, you know, when, when you and I were first talking about it, and I literally had no idea that this was even a thing until we talked. I was under the impression that they were going to cut out some of the things and make it more like the old. And just that was just my personal view of it. And then I got into the game and I realized it has everything in the current game. It's just they're just artificially limiting you to Shadows of Angmar. But I almost, you know, other than wanting to be in your kinship and perhaps play with you and, and some of our friends, I'm almost tempted just to roll a guardian on my regular server and do that because then I could share my gold and all of those other yeah. things because at some point I'm going to want to. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really torn right now because I'm enjoying it. Yes, I'm back in Lotro after a long time. So they, they accomplished that and that's wonderful. And I'm looking forward to doing some things with the group or apparently a group of guardians. Um, but long term, I'm just looking out going, man, if I really fall in love with this character, what am I going to do with it? Because there's no way I'm ever walking away from that character I've spent 10 years on, ever. And you know that because I've tried to roll on your server, on your EU server. Remember that? Yeah. And it just wasn't the same for me. And I, I had to quit that. So long term, I'm thinking, wow, you know, maybe two years from now, if I really like this Guardian and I really stick with Lotro, maybe I want that on the same server as my main character so I can share things and do things. Well, you're not the only person that has um, sort of pondered these issues and made similar sort of um, statements. There are noticeably new, more new players on Laurelin, which is the main server that I live on, than there was a month ago. I think quite a few people have said, yeah, I want to roll a new alt, but I don't want it stuck on the legendary server. Plus... I can level quicker on a regular server because there isn't that 40% XP reduction and I've got access to all my loot that's sitting in my communal barter wallet. So it was quite interesting. I was in Bree um, checking the auction house and I was quite surprised on Laurel in how many low-level characters there were floating around. And they weren't low-level characters that were wearing cosmetic items. So you thought, ah, oh, these aren't just established players rolling yet another alts. These are obviously relatively new players because they're not affiliated to a kin and they're wearing the gear that they've been given, which is always a big standout. So I think there is going to be a percentage of people who would just say, yeah, okay, I'm going to do what they're doing on the legendary server, but I'm just doing it on my regular home because of advantages and reasons. Yeah, I'm, I'm finding that there's too many people in the... Uh quest areas with me right now to the point where if you have to go out and kill six wolves at the beginning you know in the elf area uh, elf and dwarf area um there weren't six wolves to kill yeah everybody had killed them all and and you know i didn't have my bow at the time and so as i see one and i'm running up to it there's a group of two or three people it's gone 
and it got very frustrating. And that's kind of where I got the idea. Maybe I should just go to my own server because there's no way it's, it's going to be that populated. I do like the slower progression though. That's the interesting part. I don't necessarily want to be going faster than I am because I feel like by slowing down the game, it's weirdly giving me permission to take the time to enjoy the game. Does that make sense? Like when you're all in a hurry, you know, and, and the leveling's really fast, like it is in all the, the MMOs right now. Um, you just go out and you kill things and you run onto the next thing. And then pretty soon you're level cap, you know, before you know it, like in wow, people are in level cap, you know, new expansion in a couple of days, you know, there, there's that whole game that's that they spent two years developing, two years developing that expansion and they finish it in a couple of days. And so I kind of feel like I don't want to do that. I, I want to, like I said, I'm, trying to work on my deeds as I go this time instead of being out leveled and going back for them. I'm trying to earn them as I'm on level because number one, I get more XP that way, right? Yeah. Cause I'm killing a lot of things, but it's just kind of fun and it slows it down because otherwise I'd be way past where I am. So I, I don't know. Like I said, I'm just, I'm torn about this whole thing because I think it's a neat idea and I'm enjoying it right now. And it, and it got me back into Lotro. I'm just a little worried about how I'm going to feel about it, you know, six months from now or a year from now. And you and everybody else, too. Like, what's going to happen? I'm just living in the moment. I'll be very candid. I don't know whether I want to go through Moria again, particularly Moria with a decelerated XP curve. Um, but there are little things that just quash my doubts as it were i love the fact that on the login screen they've reinstated the original music it's a trivial point but i just like it i like the fact that they've reinstated the original lotro theme it brings back these waves of nostalgia which is such a powerful thing and then there were some quests that when they streamlined the the earlier levels they stripped out on the other servers but they've reinstated them here just for just for fun just for fun and larks and i like the fact that they're doing that um so it, it's it's curious so yeah i'm very much living in the moment with this legendary server it could be a question of i'll get bored at some point or as soon as they bring out update 24 in spring for the main game i'll be straight back on that because i must admit i've really enjoyed my return to Lotro. I returned to Lotro in August this year and I've played through the whole of Mordor because I'd left that outstanding for far too long, played through the whole of Update 22 and played the whole of Update 23. So it's been my focus. There's been a lot of content and it's really got me in a positive mind towards the game. And this is in some respects sort of like the cherry on the cake. But as you say, when you think about it, you can see flaws in the reasoning and potential obstacles in the road ahead. Time will tell. Well, and, and then the other issue that, that you don't even know about is, so when I logged into Lotro, and it's been several years since I've played it, um, my main character is sitting at 105, and which was the level cap of whenever I ended playing. And I looked in the Lotro store and sure enough, they were selling Mordor for Lotro points. And I have well enough points to cover that. So I, not only did I buy the high elf race, but I bought Mordor and I haven't touched it yet. It's just sitting there unlocked now. 
and I believe it's 15 levels that I can go on my main character that I've been playing a long time. So there's this urge. I, I have an urge to play the, the newest content because now I'm back in the game and I've kind of seen the systems again. I'm getting used to it. The, the, the pacing and the different stuff, you know, I, I was playing WoW for a lot of years. Now I'm playing this. Um, and then there's part of me, like I said, socially that wants to play with you and our friends and everybody who's, who's in this kin when I get in and do things that way. So, and I don't know that I have time to do both. So it's, it's a question of which one do I focus on at this point? Right now I'm playing the guardian because I'm having fun, but I might switch over and play my other character pretty soon just because I want to experience all of that content that I, you know, I heard about how hard Mordor was. You've, you've talked about it to me a little bit that, you know, until you got certain gear level and some things, it was actually very, very difficult. And I, I've heard that in other places. And so it would be interesting to experience all that. Plus that's, you know, mortar or bust, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I was always looking forward to getting there as was everybody else. And then I would like to experience what's coming after it. So it, it's, as you can tell, I'm very conflicted right now, but I am happy that you told me about um, these legendary servers because it did prompt me to start the game. I will say, however, when you and I talked the other day and I was downloading Lotro as we were talking, it took six hours after that for the game to finish downloading. And I have, I have 50 download speed. Yeah. It was applying 14,000 updates after it downloaded 14,000 and change to files. It was ridiculous. The installer for the game is ass. Very, very archaic. Um, because I replaced my hard drive recently and moved to an SSD. I had to reinstall the game. And yeah, it just highlights how archaic the installer is. It does the job, but it just takes such a long time, irrespective of the speed of your internet connection. Because I installed Star Trek, which is not as big a um, game to install as Lotro, but um, it, it, it sucked that down and spat it out onto the hard drive double quick time where, you know, I just let it run and run and run and did other chores and stuff. Well, I, I hope that Standing Stone Games maybe reevaluates that because I was so hyped after you and I talked. I mean, literally, I was downloading the game while we were talking about it, right? I was ready to play. I'm like, you know what? I've decided to go back after all this time. I am hyped about this game. And six hours later, as I'm watching the bar slowly fill up, I'm kind of like, you know, I could just be doing something else. Because I could have been playing those six hours, right? And while I was hyped, and I wasn't hyped anymore, I was pissed. I was like, this is ridiculous. So that, uh, you know, I can already tell that the technology in the game is the same. I'm on a Mac now, so I'm not even on my PC anymore that I was on for, you know, the first nine years I played that game. And I can tell you that even on the Mac, you've got the hitching and and. All of those technical problems exist in the exact same way. So over the years, because I was using the same PC for most of that, I always in the back of my mind thought my PC was the problem, right? Like surely this game can't be this bad. And surely if I had a better PC, it would stop all of these technical issues that I experienced. And it turns out it doesn't at all. 
No. Literally doesn't. It is decline itself. Yep, it's horrible. They have got a skills gap at Standing Stone Games. There was, from what a lot of people have managed to discern from reading various interviews and little nuggets and gems of information that are filtered out, there seems to be a lot of staff that have come and gone who specialised in developing certain aspects of the game. And shall we say the feedback seems to be that some of the documentation that's been left is not quite fit for purpose. Hence, we I used to really enjoy the skirmish system in that game. I thought it was a good, entertaining way to jump into something and get busy very, very quickly, earn XP. It was a great alternative way to level. It was very entertaining and challenging, depending on what level you set the skirmishes for. And yet they all dried up, allegedly because the people or person who did them moved on and they just didn't have anyone available who could address that issue now apparently they have hired people now and it's being a it's being sorted out as it were but um the same for the game client um they've finally now got someone on board they hired someone who seems to specialize in addressing the 32-bit slash 64-bit issue and they're now looking at possibly trying to recreate the game the user client so it will be a 64-bit version it will optimize multiple cores on your processor and it will eliminate some of the network slash hitching slash general functionality in large public areas that seem to blight the game but they said don't sweat on it because it's a can of worms when you're trying to do major surgery on a game that was developed in 2005, 2006 and has the technology of that time. It's not something that you can tinker with without there being consequences. Yeah. And that brings up another interesting point. And, you know, so I'm playing the game on a Mac, right? Yeah. And I get it. It's not a gaming PC. I, I get it a hundred percent. You know, I, I don't game much anymore at all. But the there, there's a looming issue for my playing Lotro. And that is, it comes down to this. The next version of Mac OS that gets released, which will be the end of next year, will be a 64-bit client only. Period. It will no longer support 32-bit applications. Whenever I play Lotro, it pops up a dialog box that basically says, this game is not compatible with 64 bits and it needs to be updated at some point, which is when the next Mac OS hits. So if they can do that in the next year, great. Then I'm golden. If they can't, I will have to stop playing the game. That's a bit of a problem. And now I know that the Mac player base might not make up the biggest percentage of Lotro players, but it's certainly going to have an impact on a sizable group, surely. Yeah, and, and there's probably ways I can do it by downloading, you know, whatever boot count. Know, there's all this stuff you can do on a Mac. I don't want to do that. No. You know, I, I, I have the Mac for a reason, and one of the reasons is I don't necessarily want to play all these Windows games. I don't want to have access to them. But, yeah, it's just it's weird being in the minority now. You know, I used to have that gaming PC that I built and was able to play whatever I wanted, and now if I get onto Steam, like, out of my 300 games I own, I can play 150 of them. I can play about half. And they run really well. You know, it's, it's kind of surprising that they do. But, you know, again, there, there's, there's this niggling little thing in the back of my mind of, 
are you going to be able to, like, if you really get into this, Brian, what happens when they take it away? Because I'm not so sure, given the track record of Standing Stone slash Turbine, if they're going to be able to overhaul this game engine. I don't think they can, actually. Yeah, remains to be seen. So it's very much a watch this space. But let, let's end this little discussion about Lytro on a, on a fairly positive note. It's it's nice to see the game talked about and to see stories about it spilling out into wider gaming websites. It's nice that people like yourself are returning to the game. It has this sort of ripple effect because the game gets talked about, people return to the game, people get nostalgic, they start mentioning the Lotro community that existed in the halcyon days of the game. And it very quickly turns to discussions of a casual stroll to Mordor and um, lots of the various fan sites that existed out there that a lot of them naturally just tailed off. People's interests change over time. But it's just nice that these sort of aspects of Lotro are being referenced again, again, and who knows, some people might even be motivated sufficiently to sort of maybe resurrect some of these podcasts or websites, or or at least to sort of start contributing with content creation in a wider sense. So I still think that there's some positive things coming out of this legendary server situation, and I, I'm appreciative of that. No, it's good to be back. Enjoying the game. So, anime bullshit. I think I think we'll do a better intro than that. <laughs> I don't think you can do better than that, honestly. Nope. Wolf, you were live streaming about two weeks ago, and I can't remember the exact situation, but the phrase anime bullshit popped up, which then preceded a conversation about sort of anime. And I remember briefly saying in the chat of the live stream that to the outsider, the person that is not particularly familiar with the world of anime, it's very intriguing, but the barriers of entry seem to be somewhat high. That It seems to have its own cultural references. Unless you've watched a lot, it seems a little bit esoteric at times. And if you want to get into it, it's like, where do you start? Because I get the impression that anime is not just a style of animation. It comes with a lot more baggage. Yeah, you're not wrong on that. And I believe that I was referring to that during the segment of a playthrough of World of Final Fantasy, where it had like this whole animated thing. And it followed like a lot of tropes of like <laughs> anime opening sequences where it's showing off the action and showing the heroes in the most positive most potent light possible um so yeah it's I, I so that was really a reference to all those kind of tropes that are seen or or done still to this day in a lot of animated uh series from japan in general they the uh <clears throat> where like the animation production seems to be higher than even the regular anime production. Uh, uh, a brilliant example of that is like the opening to the Thundercats cartoon back in the 80s 
was mm-hmm. vastly superior visually to the actual show. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, there's, there's like an as- assumed history, a lot of like things that are visually tropey, a lot of things that seem to kind of like happen frequently enough to where it just sort of like, I just kind of catch it all playfully into the term bullshit. Just, just because, I mean, that's, you sort of see that and you think that's, that's an anime opening. You can see that in shows like uh, One Punch Man, which is basically just anime bullshit. The anime. Because it's the idea being this this guy's got so powerful that he can take anything out with one punch. And everyone's like, okay, what's the point now then? So like the entire show is built around the fact that because in anime, people are constantly getting more powerful, more powerful, more powerful. It's like, where does it stop? So then they came up with the One Punch Man, where it's like, yeah, he can just kill anything with one punch, like anything. And that's like the idea of, yeah, that's pretty much where it stops. And, and he looks bored while doing it too, which is funny. Yeah. Like his face is always like very just... Ugh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Jodia, how did you get into anime? What was your first exposure to it as a genre? Mm, I think my first exposure to it probably would have been Pokemon because um, I'm of the generation where Pokemon became huge in the UK when I was like, what, 11, 12-ish, I think. Um, and there was stuff like uh, Cardcaptor Sakura, I think, was on Nickelodeon briefly, but um, I ended up trying to force my way into the genre because I didn't really have anyone around me that watched it. So I started watching uh, Studio Ghibli and and then eventually my now husband's had some DVDs of things like Cowboy Bebop and stuff. And that's pretty much where I started. How about you, Wolfie? Um, a lot of the stuff I started with, my very first anime show that I recognized as anime was the original Dragon Ball. Um, and from there, it just kind of sort of sprang from what little I could. Because when I was growing up, there wasn't a whole lot of anime available as regularly as it is now. I mean, even discounting the the VHSs or the DVD production level that came to the West, a lot of the stuff was either an extremely specialist programming or you had to go through the bootleg market for people who took, like, VHSs from Japan and fan-subbed it and then, like, put that onto their own spool and distributed it themselves freely uh, on their own homemade VHS. Actually, one of my girlfriends had one of those fan subs for Sailor Moon, Sailor Stars. Um, But I started with Dragon Ball. There was a block on the sci-fi network um, that was called Saturday Anime that had a little harder edge stuff. And then the Toonami block on the Cartoon Network in the afternoons had a lot of other more mainstream anime like uh, Outlaw Star and Dragon Ball Z and things of that sort. I do remember Dragon Ball Z being on Cartoon Network a lot, but well, I was a girl, so I was like, no, I'm not interested in that, so I never understand the references when people are going on about it. Yeah, Sailor Moon is like the female Dragon Ball, so to speak. I never watched that either. Hmm. <laughs> this is interesting because I think it's there's very much a sort of generational thing here. I'm a slightly older gentleman and I grew up during the 70s and I was a teenager during the 80s. Now in the UK, you're talking about satellite television only starting to get some traction in the, in the 80s. And certainly none of the channels that show a lot of these shows 
being available to the UK market at the time. However, during the 70s, I can remember um, the BBC filling their schedules sometimes with a show called Marine Boy, which was originally um, filmed in Japan in 1966. And I am now looking at the Wikipedia page, and this was the first exposure I had to anime, although I did not know it at the time. I just thought this is quaint dubbed animation with some curious sort of character foibles, which I think is just the UK dub trying to sort of get around certain cultural references that just don't work. Um, And then in the 80s, um, Battle of the Planets, Mm. which um, I don't have the Wikipedia page open, so I can't quickly reference what the actual original Japanese name was. And I can remember at the time being very cognizant of the fact that these were very stylish pieces of animation. The animation seemed a lot better than some of the other shows. It's really weird. I suppose the immediate equivalent that I would have compared it to would have been the filmation titles, things like the Star Trek animated show and the Tarzan animated show. A little Hanna-Barbera-ish, except the movement yeah. was more fluid. Yeah, I can appreciate mm-hmm. that. It's hard to put your finger on exactly what it is sometimes. It's just like, that's anime, but it's like, what is it? <laughs> you know. And, and the fact that quite a lot of um, projects get outsourced to Japanese animation studios, because I can remember during the 80s, you've got shows like... The Adventures of Willy Fogg and Dog Tanyon and the, the Musker Hounds, they're Spanish cartoons, but the bulk of the work got actually animated by Japanese studios, so therefore it still has a lot of commonalities in the aesthetic and the style and the way things are, um, are presented. And, and again, I come back to my generational point. I became more aware of the significance of anime when my son was growing up for the same reason you mentioned had Pokemon. Yeah. And then all the subsequent sort of equivalent sort of animation shows like Yu-Gi-Oh, which sprang up at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking back now to, yeah, Digimon, that's another one. I'm thinking back now to a lot of the cartoons I used to watch, much like, well, again, that reference Thundercats. Um, the Inspector Gadget almost has sort of anime style, and I'm kind of like thinking like I remember seeing a lot of references to Toei Animation Incorporated, so that's probably where a lot of that style kind of bled into. Like, and, and that happened a lot with other cartoon shows. Like, um, I, I think Toei had something to do with or was otherwise involved with uh, the Transformers series, the show Mask, uh, the cartoon show Cops. Uh, that was another one that kind of had this anime-ish style. Um, where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? So there's there's a few of them. Uh, uh, but yeah, there's there's... But I never really thought about it because it was just an action cartoon. You know, it's just something that kind of stuck out. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of them were probably influenced by things like uh, Batman and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and things like that as well. So there's that that goes into it. Mm. This is probably going to be one of those horrendously tricky questions that I just throw out there in a very glib fashion, expecting there to be a very straightforward answer. <laughs> What are the distinctions of anime rather than just other studios, Western studios? Is it just purely an aesthetic style or is there a subtext, a sort of ethos to it? In a very basic term, um, I see it personally as there's a lot of variation in anime. If you look at Western animation, you're tending to get 
very similar things. So you'll have like Steven Universe and Adventure Time these days, and then we had like Batman and uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and things. And it's all somebody going out as a hero saving the day. And in in like Japanese anime, you get you know you'll have things like Slice of Life where it's just kids in a school doing silly things and then they've got like sports anime and all sorts of different genres uh some are aimed at kids and then you've got things uh aimed at a lot a much more mature audience like uh kira and ghost in the shell and things so it's so varied compared with what we're used to which is changing now because we're having a lot more cultural exchange but there's just a much higher volume of things to choose from, I suppose. Yeah, the subject matter is definitely more varied in anime. Uh, for me, a lot of the visual dyna- dynamism is what kind of stands out to me. A lot of it, a lot of anime does kind of tend to sort of either harken back to old tricks that were used. Like um, they would like, like for example, I remember seeing this uh, uh, this documentary where a lot of animation that was coming out of Japan had extremely bad budgets. And so they had to do tricks in order to sort of kind of mimic or, or or stylize movement. So for example, when a character was driving through a cityscape, like they would have like two background slates that were like slowly pushed in different directions in a sort of parallax scrolling manner in order to provide the sense of movement and rushing forward. Uh, a lot of dynamic camera angles to kind of keep things flowing interestingly, just sort of like have as much action in one piece of art as possible. And so you kind of see a lot of those things still in a lot of modern animes nowadays. It's kind of like become a stylistic thing where they're trying to have as much uh, possible movement in one scene as they can without having to draw like frames and frames and frames of animation. You see like a lot of like quick movement, uh, lowered frames in terms of mo- motion or smears or blurs or things like that. Those techniques that kind of give a s- sense of force and speed and movement without using a lot, a lot of artwork and time. Like so many aspects of popular culture, there are sometimes a few negative points that get blown out of proportion and cause a bit of parental mass hysteria. There is some negative aspects towards anime as far as some of the content etc some of the way it handles certain topics etc do do you feel that this is a deserved reputation is it something that's blown out of proportion or do you think that there is just a question of cultural differences i think that's what Wolfie refers to as the anime bullshit. <laughs> well, bullshit is kind of like a catch-all for the tropes, as well as some of the um, some of the negative context. Certainly, like there's a uh, there are certain things that anime does that just seems to just be a requirement or an assumed requirement. For example, I, I last time I was on the show, I went on a freaking diatribe about the anime Food Wars, uh, because I thought that the story and the content of the show and the premise was so good 
but then they threw in a whole bunch of fan service and hyper animated breasts to kind of hope that that was what was keeping people's interest as opposed to the stuff that they were actually doing I've and writing. A lot of shows um, when they've done things like that. But uh, oh yeah, for sure, yeah, and and that's and that's a thing. Like it's a, uh, it's it's easy to assume that all anime is like that, and there's certainly parts in lots of shows that I've enjoyed that do kind of go a little bit overboard but but at the same time it's not so prevalent to where you can just sort of assume it's in every piece of anime out there like if you're if you're looking desperately for that sort of thing in like modern pokemon for one you're probably sick and for two it's just i mean a lot of the stuff nowadays is just it's it's kind of on its own little shelf you can sort of assume some things uh without jumping the conclusions but at the same time you really can't cast that net on every piece of anime work that's ever been out there like there's a lot of really spectacular anime that doesn't fall back on a lot of the assumptions and assumed pitfalls that that happen in the genre um and and at the same time there's some there's a little bit of enjoyment to that sort of thing as well like there's for example a lot of the anime i don't particularly like anymore tends to be pretty violent but some of the most popular shows really are like attack on titan for example extremely popular show but also pretty pretty violent and but um but at the same time they kind of i guess they seem to sort of hit a balancing point where they're telling a story but not ultimately relying on hyper-violence and gore to... I'd also say that, that um, if you're looking at it from a parental stance, a lot of the stuff that tends to be, like, hyper-violent, um, I'm thinking of things like Psychopaths and Ghost in the Shell and Kira and stuff. Um, it's not aimed at kids, so you have to really consider um, age ratings and stuff. I mean, something like My Hero Academia would be probably okay-ish but it's this again it comes back to some of it's aimed at a mature audience and some of it isn't yeah there's still a whole lot of mental hurdles that people sort yeah. of have associated with the animation it's not helped by disney and it's not certainly being helped by things like uh like um like dreamworks animation or stuff like that when people see like an animated film they assume that it's immediately g and that's not the case so that's yeah. that's one of the best things about anime is that it's an art style and not forcing itself into yeah. those those boxes all the time which dovetails back into that point earlier about its popularity and appeal is it's got a broader emotional spectrum we've been watching um a lot of the more modern sort of western animation lately like we very late to the party on things like steven universe and adventure time and it's obviously it's aimed at kids but it's interesting how like i had the mindscape that oh it's aimed at kids thus it's not aimed at me thus why would i watch it and it's a really weird thing that people have that yeah that that, that kind of brings me back to sort of spinning off a tiny bit so i apologize but um a lot of the animated films from Don Bluth's era, um, those were PG, and they were kind of assumed that they were aimed for kids, but they also touched on a lot of tougher subjects or darker themes and things like that. Because 
a lot of Don Bluth's yeah, a lot of Don Bluth's productions assumed, in my opinion, pretty correctly, that most older children or children at a certain age are intelligent enough to have the emotional maturity mm-hmm. to handle this sort of thing, or at least be exposed to it in such a way that maybe a discussion can happen. And that's where things like like Steven Universe or uh, The Legend of Korra or, um, or things like that, where it's bringing up a lot of subject matter or lifestyles or things that children would otherwise not be regularly exposed to. Um, and that, that kind of, that kind of uh, brings up a point that I think it's nice to see in animation overall, as well as an anime that there's an assumed yeah. level of mental maturity uh, among children. There's a lot now, of people that, that think kids certain can't age. handle certain subject matters when they're a lot more, um, mentally able to accept things than people give them credit for that's true that is very true children have built nations will sampson said that in poltergeist too so who am i to contradict him (laughs) Mm. and they've got to be exposed to it at some point so why not you know in a warm manner like animation but this is very much a western prejudice the fact that animation is um you know a, a, a medium to present stories to children and it's like yeah as you referenced don bluth um the secret of nim mm-hmm. it's a bit bleak um and then you you know if you want to really terrify your children <laughs> you had during the 80s in the uk watership down and the plague dogs those are very grown-up pieces of animation you can show them to children but i would say make sure that your child is aware of their own mortality <laughs> and this is you know just got their head around certain concepts because they are very bleak and frankly terrifying and also i suppose you could say ralph bakshi's adaptation of the lord of the rings um so oh, yeah. it doesn't skimp on the violence I, I i that's where a lot of anime kind of has some benefit because it does kind of have and that and it's, and certainly it can go from the extremes of extre- super goofy cartoon violence to exploding heads and mutilation, but there but there can be like a few shows that kind of sort of have a bit of a grade of uh, where they they tell a story. It, a, a lot of the Studio Ghibli films, uh, for example, kind of touch on things that are i feel appropriate for children of a certain age while also being good for adults to watch to tell a story as well and and it brings to mind this line one of my favorite lines from the movie the incredibles um where the mother is talking to her children it's like you know those guys in your saturday morning cartoons these the bad guys where they they don't really act these are not those guys they will kill you if given the chance and and when i was watching the special edition or the the commentary section with the producer brad bird he mentioned that he brought up the fact that he wants the violence in his cartoon to have consequence which is missing from a lot of children's programming now it's like the cartoon Mm -hmm. the violence just happens uh, and anime, so a lot of animes, the violence has consequence. There's there's weight and gravitas to it. Yeah, that's actually uh, an interesting difference between the US and the UK. Actually, we a lot of the um, the US animations that we get on British TV 
tends to be quite heavily censored in the the violence region. Even things like Steven Universe have a lot of things cut out of them because it's too violent for the kids, which sometimes goes a bit too far. But at the same time, you can see a bum on British TV. You know, it's it's a really strange little cultural difference. I think. Right. So we've we've had a look at what broadly defines anime. Um, it, why it appeals and its subtle difference to Western animation. Um, we, we've discussed using your wits and making sure that you pick something that is appropriate if you're watching it in a shared audience. Um, if somebody says, okay, I want to, I am oblivious to this genre and I want to give it a go, it looks like fun, where's a good place for people to start? What sort of are titles that they can go and have a look at which won't throw them straight into the deep end with some of the more esoteric stuff. It would just be, oh, I dig this. I would personally say things like Studio Ghibli. Um, they're really easy to find. Um, they're very often on TV, I know, especially on um, Film 4 in the UK, at least. Um, the dubbing, the English voiceovers, really pretty solid. Um, and it's just, it's the closest you're going to get to Disney in um, Japanese animation. So things like Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle, mm-hmm. uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, Princess Mononoke. There, a lot of them, even things like uh, The Secret World of Arietti, which is very similar to The Borrowers. Um, so you're going to get a lot of sort of similarities there. That's a very good start. Uh, in series, it really depends on your tastes. If you want to go into something lighthearted or there's sports, there's fantasy, there's there's mecha, sci-fi. I would probably suggest things like Cowboy Bebop and Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, um, Attack on Titan. Um, I've got a massive list, which I'm not going to read off right now. <laughs> um but I'd, I'd also say it's worth looking into some of the Western shows as well. Things like um, Rooster Teeth's Ruby and Avatar Last Airbender and um, movies like Kubo and the Two Strings. They're, they're Western, but there's a lot of inspiration there from Japanese animation. So it's a nice little sort of a bridge, shall we say? Okay. Right. Um, so you can kind of sort of cut your teeth on something that's kind of there, but also familiar. Um, but then you've got Netflix and Amazon Prime and uh, Funimation and Crunchyroll, which have really opened up anime to a wider audience. So it's always worth just sort of looking what's available on whatever you have access to. Yeah, I really can elaborate more on that. JD had mentioned earlier that there is a genre for pretty much any taste, and that really is the case. That was that was the case for manga. That's the case for anime because, I mean, they come from similar sort of region and location and art style. So there's, there's a number nowadays. Nowadays, honestly, if somebody is brand new to anime, they have so many more avenues and ways to get into it. But... I agree. The Studio Ghibli stuff, a lot of the Funimation stuff, um, those would be the first places I would look. Funimation being one of the largest distributors of anime in general. 
Um, and then when you find some series or shows or movies that really kind of hit this button for you, maybe you can look into services like Netflix or Crunchyroll, uh, specifically Crunchyroll, because that is much more anime focused. Um, though I would maybe start on Netflix first, if only because yeah. Crunchyroll, Crunchyroll kind of feels more like the uh, the the anime ex- wild west. Yeah, yeah, it can be a little bit there. So, so like, if I was to say on a grade, I would definitely like agree to start on the Ghibli stuff, um, and then look into Funimation's releases, and then into Netflix. And once you've kind of like at that point, I think you've probably assumed a taste of the types of animes that you enjoy watching, the genres, the subgenres, and the kinds of stories you like. And then you can graduate, so to speak, to the Crunchyroll stuff, which is more the direct enthusiast's way to get their anime yeah. as much as possible. Crunchyroll is where you're going to find the English subtitled anime, which is a lot tougher to get into for those of us who are used to just putting something on in the background. And I was going to raise that point. I thought, mm. oh, I should have actually raised this earlier in the show. There is this bit of a schism, isn't there? Yeah. The camps of opinion, those who like the pure original product in the original dialogue with subtitles, problem being sometimes subtitles, English subtitles might not be available, so you have to rely on gifted amateurs. <laughs> and then there's the other camp that just says, no, I like things to be in an English dub, but then sometimes the nuances can be removed. Myself, personally speaking, coming from a film fan point of view, I discovered Jackie Chan by watching full screen bad English dubs and what you had was a, a movie that sounded very silly but you loved the stunt work and then when you f- roll on a decade when you then had access to import DVDs you could watch the source material in, in a proper aspect ratio with none of the footage cut out and in the original dialogue but with badly translated English subtitles, which usually went along the lines of, hey, man, look at that lady. She's got a real crazy figure. Yeah, she must be at least a 38. And you just thought, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, that kind of goes back to the anime bullshit earlier, right? Because <laughs> like back in the 80s and, and, and 80s and the 90s, certainly early to mid 90s, like the voice work was not good. It was really not. And I, but there's a sort of charm to it. And so a lot of folks kind of, I think maybe there is this assumption that that is still the case. The voice actors in English are not nearly as talented, or there's so much lost in translation over the port, over the course of localizing, which is different than direct translation, as you, I'm sure you would appreciate uh, that, that it just, isn't true to source material, but me speaking personally, I mean, one of the favorite tropes that doesn't happen anymore is the speed racer trope where you're like, somebody like tries to get in as much words as possible and they go, Oh, because <laughs> they didn't have anything more to say, but the character's mouth was hanging open. So the voice actor assumed they needed to make a sound to kind of like fill in that space. So I was like, Oh no, he's going to pass me. Oh, you know, that, that sort of, I think that's still kind of in the back of a lot of folks' mind, and that's really not the case anymore. There's plenty of, a lot of the Ghibli stuff uh, is brilliantly acted by incredibly talented actors and voice actors. Yeah, and I think there's arguments um, on both sides. 
Um, you're going to, there's a lot more focus needs to go into reading subtitles and watching the animation. Um, so it's harder to sit there and do your knitting or something while you're watching it. Um, but then you also have uh, subtitled anime is really good for people who have um, hard of hearing. So they obviously they rely on the subtitles and you know they're going to be solid in anime because that's the primary way that we've always had it. Um, but it also it comes back around to the the whole idea of how fandoms react and people want their their anime to be pure and from the source and they want it to be subtitled so it's not all messed up with your oh and things like that. <laughs> I must admit, I, I'm a big fan of the oh, purely because <laughs> I've seen lots of bad martial arts films during the 80s and stuff, and they obviously did exactly the same thing where people would say, oh, damn you, oh. Or they just didn't bother. Like you see, like the character's mouth moving for about two and a half seconds, and then the voice actor, the the dub over would start to kick in. <laughs> There's a charm to that, but <laughs> there is a charm to that. It really is. And and one of my favorite uh, anime films was the Street Fighter anime, and like it's it's that perfect balance of well voiced and produced in terms of the vocal acting department but also not uh one of the things that always strikes me is like the first scene is like character uh, ryu is fighting against sagat and like the before like the opening title slate like ryu is like charging up his hadoken fireball move and like the animation of the mouth kind of moves in such a way that I think the voice actor assumed he has to go, how <laughs> it was like, it was kind of incredible. Like I loved it for that, that, that sort of cheesiness. I, I enjoyed that, but, but that's a hurdle for a lot of folks that can't clear, or they're just so used to reading subtitles at speed that they're, that they can't do it any other way. Yeah. Or you just get used to it and accept that sometimes there is a bit of anime bullshit and it's fine. <laughs> I wanted to touch upon the subject of fandom. It's a subject that whenever it tends to get mainstream coverage, be it on the news or in the press, it tends to be a story of fandom that is of a negative type. I think there's more to it than that. Fandom has become eminently marketable in the last three decades. It's gone from being something that fans conducted away from the rest of the mainstream world to now conventions. I mean, you look at something like Comic-Con, rolled a date back to the, the late 70s, early 80s. It, it was a niche market product that other people would just be oblivious to. And now it's this huge money-making concern. I've done podcasts in the past. I've spoken to people in the past saying, Yes, it's actually something now where the monetization of it is sort of usurping fandom, as it were. But I, I just thought, you know, it's worth referencing fandom is big business. However, the stories that stand out for 2018 for me regarding fandom are sadly negative ones. Um, at the beginning of the year, you had the pushback from certain quarters of the Star Wars community 
about the fact that they really weren't too keen on The Last Jedi. In fact, they some of them were so not impressed by it, they actually thought, I know, let's get a few signatures on a piece of paper and write to that nice Mr. Disney and say, you should remake the film because it's jolly not on, you know, and let's upset us, which I thought was staggeringly risible. But it, I think it says something when fans feel sufficiently empowered and enraged that they actually think that such a course of action can be taken and it might even yield results. I find that very, very, very fascinating. Um, what else did we have this year? Um, the announcement of Battlefield Five and the fact that it was going to be set in World War Two, and oh no, it's going to have playable female characters. I know, shocking. This really upset some people who um, who were labouring under the misconception that the Battlefield franchise was an accurate historical record rather than a piece of entertainment. And plus the fact women fought in World War II anyway. So let's have less of this nonsense. And, and then obviously, I think on a slightly more complicated um, basis, you had the... Um, BlizzCon debacle recently and the um, announcement of Diablo Immortal and the fact that it um, upset the, the, the faithful and there was some pushback on that. That, I think, is a slightly more complex issue, but it all just highlights the point. Fandom just often seems to appear to be choppy waters and the impression that you could get not necessarily the right impression, we should discuss it, is that fandom's getting a little bit more militant, a bit more bellicose. How do you guys feel? I I have opinions on these kinds of people, which I don't want to go crazily into. <laughs> but sometimes you look at like the idea of fandom and I just you just look at it and go, I don't want to be a part of that. But <laughs> the thing thing is i think that those kind of people are very much a vocal minority it's just that they get picked up because they're so loud and i just i think the main thing that i take away from it is that those sorts of people are not necessarily the most stable of people and i don't know it's weird because i don't want to go as far as to say that they're not true fans because that breaches something else um, and I don't know each of them individually. I don't like generalisations on groups of people generally but if you're going to start attacking creators and sending them death threats just because they didn't take the, the fantasy world that you're invested in in a certain direction then I think we've got bigger issues at play there than just fandom, you know? I feel like I have a personal insight to this whole matter because I grew up at a time where video game marketing was really, really, really tribalist. Uh, there was the whole Sega does what Nintendo don't and that whole thing with the Genesis claiming it had blast processing, which was actually bullshit. And and then you have like you know this this counterculture thing where like we are better than them and that sort of that was part of marketing or like 
it's just I, I feel like that sort of I don't know if that necessarily lit the fire, but it certainly added kindling. And nowadays, with people assuming that interaction in the broader social media requires you to spit out the hottest take possible in the fewest lines to get the most likes and engagement, like to build your brand, it's kind of it kind of has sort of snowballed from that point where it was just marketing being like, we have this system. You don't into this. If you don't, if you have people with breasts in our fighting game, I will hate you forever. You know, it's just this whole, just, it just kind of has blown up from there. And I don't think that's always the case because the axiom goes, I think is like the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Right. Yeah. And and there's always going to be people who will bitch, whine, and complain about anything and everything as asinine as possible. But ultimately, the people who are pleased with things don't speak nearly as loud, which has always been the thing that I've tried to advocate when I was doing and, and anything that some of the blog posts I've written <laughs> in whatever broadcasts I do on my streams and even just in my general social media, uh, you know, my and, and things that I put out on social media, I try to kind of elevates the idea that I like this thing and it is good to like this thing. Yeah. And, and and yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of assumptions people make about how things are produced. Going to the Diablo immortal example, there's a really amazing piece that was put out by Kotaku about what really kind of is the, the gears that are working behind that whole thing and it's definitely worth a read and it's just there's there's a lot it's a lot easier to just assume everybody is an asshole as opposed to kind of assume this think about or stop and think this is a facet this isn't all of them mm-hmm. uh, and but it's just it's it's just there's a lot like almost most problems there's a lot of little factors that kind of tie into all into it all I don't know whether, again, age is a factor. If I look at blog posts that I've written a decade plus ago, thank you, Fane. Um, <laughs> if I didn't like something, I wouldn't say, I don't like it, and these are the reasons why. I'd say, I'd say I don't like it, these are the reasons why, and I will now pour a heap scorn and frame this in, in such terms where I will mock and deride it and damn its, damn its eyes and strip it of its britches, etc. And you know, I don't feel the need to do that now. It's just like, I like this. These are the reasons why. It's a good thing. You might like it. You might not like it. You know, End of story. I actually worry about the fact that I've written some film reviews of late and it's like, mm, this film was wanting and it's like there's been three of those in a row. So I now feel the need that I really should write a review about something that I really enjoyed just so people don't think he only writes negative film reviews. Mm. I used to do book um, reviews and you have to be really careful not to fall into that trap because mm. it's, it's a case of trying to find the balance. If you're looking at a film review... You, there are always going to be different criticisms you can level at the movie. Um, some of them will be more positive, some will be more negative, and it's just a balance over which one comes higher. And I think even if it's more negative more often, that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's a review for a reason. I just worry that fandom is in some ways reflecting 
the same malaise that contemporary politics is. There's no nuance. It's binary. If you like this, fine, you're with us. If you don't like it, or even if you don't publicly say you like it, your lack of saying it will be taken as you don't like it. Do you know what I mean? It's there's there's no nuance. The moment something happens and someone goes, oh, I don't know if I like this. They don't step back and consider and wait for further information. It's just like instant reaction culture. You've presented me with this. I'm turning it up to 11 and I'm now going to go, wow really loudly and and it's it's that seems to be spilling over into every aspect of society or is that just me no i don't think you're off the mark there there is a lot of people who kind of try to do as much or consume as much as possible in as little time and it's so much easier to read a, an alarmist headline or a hot take uh, than to actually like stop and click through or get all the facts or consider the source or maybe kind of go into, God forbid, the comments thread or the responses to such hot take into which you can kind of pick out some of the nuance. That actually kind of happened to me uh, on my feed yesterday where somebody was retweeting this letter that was supposedly about how somebody suggested to someone who wasn't able to afford some treatment that they opened a GoFundMe. And I read through because I wanted to get the context. Where was this from? How was it sourced? And I read through, flipped through, and somebody pointed out very astutely that the date that the letter was mentioning was not accurate. It said it was October 20th was a Saturday, which is actually a Tuesday, which immediately called everything into this image in question. Mm. So a lot of people don't stop to think, you know, they don't stop to think critically or they don't try to follow through. And because it's a lot of people want to avoid clickbait, which I can appreciate. But sometimes you need to just eat the advert pop-ups and just get the context and all the facts or try to as much as you can. I think it's especially important in these days of social media where it's so easy to get absorbed in people rage is kind of addictive in some terms and social media has really not helped that and i think that i mean yeah in some regards you can see parallels to contemporary politics and stuff there definitely but i still think that it's like a vocal minority and you've got more people like us who are just happily playing the games that got horrible reviews and watching the films that people shat all over and we don't necessarily we might say we like the thing but because we're not angry about it it doesn't get as much traction from my own experience and here's a nice recent one the legendary servers have popped up in the lotro community yeah there's a few people that went don't get it few people that went to silly idea but most people just went yay this looks fun and see to me this is the epitome of fandom at the moment like true is my first mmo i have a very strong emotional connection to it whatever is your first mmo you will have a strong emotional affection to it might mm. be a negative one but you will have one um to me it's like i like this game it has its flaws but it's fun it has a nice community and when i write about it I won't shy away from 
its deficits, but I will, by and large, say it, it brings me pleasure and joy, therefore I like it. And that, to me, is what fandom's about. It is something that I enjoy. It is something that I support. I, I, I care to a degree about things that happen to that game and that community. But at the end of the day, it is not something that I own. It is a product that is shared with me, and I am emotionally invested in it, but I'm not a sh- I have no control over it. And it's, it's, it's this point that I find very interesting, the fact that fandom, and I've even seen fans of things like Star Wars and, 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 and other things, other big high-profile franchises, I've actually seen them write that because they've given so much love, money, their time, because it's you know to use emotive terms because i've given you my heart you owe me and i find that very curious it's bringing a very human element that usually i would expect to see in relationships and it's bringing that to the culture of fandom but then again is have i touched upon a point is it because for those sort of fans it is a relationship I think that's a very complex point because I can see the arguments of both sides there, but I just keep wrapping my head around the fact that a lot of these people are going and attacking the creators. And when it comes to that kind of person, I can't, I can't pass it. It's just like, why would you even think that's a good idea? And they don't, own the creation whether they've put money and time into it or not the creator created it the creator has control over where it goes in the future personally i like harry potter there's been a lot of things that jk rowling has um done recently that have changed things in hindsight and added new movies and stage show and they've not been great honestly, from my point of view, but it doesn't take away from the original books that I loved. They still exist as they did. I can still love them and just not have to absorb the new material that I don't like so much. And I don't understand why that's not an option. It's it's totally an option. It just doesn't seem to be the thing that that doesn't seem to be the most common mental bridge when it totally should be. And mm-hmm. to, the, to the point of bringing up the Lotro legendary servers, it kind of like also speaks to the thing that uh, JD had mentioned earlier, where like the angry and the disillusioned are the vocal minority. They make a huge amount of noise, but they still are a minority. The, the, the Lotro legendary servers have been so effusive by so many that any number of people who maybe are angry about them are completely cast aside because there is, at least as far as I can perceptually assume, thrice as many people delighted by the way the Lot Road Legendary servers are working yeah. and happening. And, and, and that happens with a game like Star Citizen, where I've recently been very much into it uh, for the past couple of days. And going into it, I was certainly a cynic. I wasn't to the point where I was somebody like a Derek Smart who was trying to crap on anybody who liked it or the game itself or Chris Roberts himself directly over it. But at the same time, I was um, kind of curious. So I've I, I, a while ago, I bought a package, played it during an early build, 
wasn't thrilled, figured I'll step away, kind of push it all to one side, leave it alone, leave the people and discussion out of my sphere, and come back when there's something major. The recent update has been not enough to absolutely make me thrilled, but I get it now. You know, I see what a lot of the people who are super defensive about and happy about Star Citizen see now, or at least part of it. So it's a matter of just kind of having the the mental fortitude to just separate any emotion or heart from the creation. Because ultimately, like like you guys mentioned, you don't own the creation no matter how invested mentally and emotionally you are in it. It's still done by somebody else. And ultimately, in, in the end, in the absolute end, the only reason this stuff is being done is to get you to part with your damn money. Yeah. And I'll even bring it back around to Star Wars again. Um, I mean, when Disney took over, they made the original Extended Universe um, not canon anymore. And that piss a lot of people off. But it doesn't mean that it stops existing. Yeah. You can still read those comics and books and and in the case of a game like Star Wars The Old Republic, they yeah. have like said, awesome, we're free of the shackles of Lucasfilm. Screw <laughs> it. Let's get as stupid as we want to be. There's a third empire. You guys should stop it. It's, it's so, it's, th- there's something liberating about that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. You can either get mad at it, enjoy what was, or just embrace the new shit. You really can. It's you really can do one of those things. It doesn't have to be one way only. There is nuance I of options. There's a lot more to be gained from going. Okay, I don't like this new thing, but I like this old thing. So I'm going to put my love and attention to the old thing still and continue enjoying it because it doesn't take away from it it's the only thing that affects anything in fandom like that in my opinion is social media and everybody's outrage over whatever new thing has happened now the moment people start screaming about something horrible is the moment that you start taking notice and it's it can get difficult to maintain the positive attitude over the thing you love when everybody is bitching about it all the time, but it's still possible, I think. Okay, here's a point to consider. As I stated earlier, fandom has become more of a mainstream thing now, and people mainstream perceptions have altered somewhat. Therefore, if you say, oh, I'm into such and such, People now won't immediately hold up a crucifix and call in a priest, shall we say. Um, sports is a, it's something that's always been an ex- a socially acceptable form of fandom. Um, think of something, if you can, that you would quite happily admit in a room full of strangers that you're a fan of. And then are there some things that you think, I won't mention just as a little test, just to sort of sort of see, you know, where the world is at. Sort of crappy Vox Pop litmus test. <laughs> well, I guess like being considered a gamer, um, and, and I and I vocally wrap that in quote fingers because <laughs> that's um that's just not even a subset anymore. 
uh, of of a person of a personality that I mean, and I and I've listed myself in my own Twitter file uh, profile as a gamer, G A Y, but that's not all I am, obviously. But it's kind of like gives like a sort of broad stroke assumption of the things that I'd like to see and do. Um, you know, in in this case, dudes' butts in video games. Uh, but <laughs> but um, you know, that, that that's that's one thing that I think the term that kind of doesn't really beat get me beaten up in in the court of public opinion so much anymore. Uh, on the other hand, stating that I am a fan of watching esports. Um, wow, does that have a lot of stigma attached to it still? Um, right. And it, it kind of does because it sort of assumes, and that kind of brings me back mentally around to those 90s adverts where, you know, video game advertisements were thumping about being part of this group. Either you're there with one of the, yeah. either you're with this product or you're not. And esports kind of has a lot of that same sort of thing in its marketing. It's like, do you want to really take your game to the next level? Then get this headphones, you know, that sort of thing. And okay, and yeah. a lot of the esports presentation sort of kind of builds that up. Like, this is a much more serious. This is how the real players play. And I'm just sitting here like, I want to watch people play a game that I'm not particularly good at at a very high level and kind of marvel at the ability. Yeah, whereas somebody like me is actually put off by all that kind of thing. But I don't I don't then think, oh, people who watch this are really douchey because it's obviously I know personally that that's not what esports is. But I guess it's very easy to get that um, association with it. Yeah, that's one of the things I'm not so happy about in mainstream sports. I have no problem with the concepts of sports. It's the fact that it's wrapped in this veneer. It, it, it's it's in it's the, the hot dog in the bun of bro culture, seventies mindset notions of what masculinity is, and it, it also flirts with misogyny, racism, stupidity, and just just general twatty dick wadery. Yeah, for lack of a better word, for sure. Yes. And, you know, it's like esports is a perfect opportunity, or was on paper at least, a perfect opportunity to break away from that. And it is just, it's it's wrapped itself in the same flag. In fact, it's done worse than that. It's wrapped itself in the same flag twice. And that, to me, is the major stumbling block. There's still, you know... I'm a man. I'm a man who's nearly fifty-one. I'm British. You know, if you if you win at a at a game of chess, you doff your cap to the winner and shake his hand warmly and write a congratulatory letter to his mother. You know, I don't care for this testosterone-driven, chest-thumping. You know, my victory means that your family's crushed into the dirt and burnt into ashes, and then I urinate on them. To me, that's just crap. So, yeah, that is something I won't think I would be happy to stand up and say in, an, in the public space at the moment. I'm a big fan of, of esports because I think it comes with baggage. It absolutely does. But at the same time, I feel that just like when I do when it comes to anything I put out in terms of writing or broadcasting and, and celebrating fandom, I, it's, I think it's important to show that, hey... Not everybody who likes this thing is a, you know, walking bag of douche. You know, there, yeah. there's people who are 
mentally adjusted. I like to think I'm mentally well adjusted enough to sort of enjoy are, a thing are. without like leaning into that sort of, or and I mean, there's a reason I turn off the chat or I don't follow esports websites very closely. If I, I, if I, I know a couple of games that I enjoy watching being played at high level or genres of games, I watch them. That's it. Like that's the most consumption I have. I don't care about following an org. I don't care about reading about esports headlines, and I damn sure don't care about what people are saying in Twitch chat. It's so it's possible to consume this sort of stuff and not be an asshole about it. So that's that goes all by circles right back around to fandom, enjoying the thing honestly, and 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 just earnestly without trying to focus on all the stuff surrounding it, all that baggage, which is something that JDM mentioned earlier. She said, you know, just kind of liking something without getting connected to all the social media noise and static. Yeah, I definitely agree with all of that as well. Though I do find a lot of the things that I get attached to are a lot more niche. So um the only sport I ever really got into is Speedway, which is a motorbike sport that hardly anybody has ever heard of. And the community around that was a lot more closer, I suppose, because there were less of them. Um, but then you look at things like the World of Warcraft community and you're going to have people like me who have played for years but I'm not representative of the community. And I, I don't know, I'm, I've never been ashamed of saying I am a fan of this thing to people, but I suppose I do feel a little bit embarrassed to admit that World of Warcraft was what made me consider myself a gamer. And it's still a game that I have some love for among other gamers. It's it's kind of strange, but I still like to be part of the um, the quieter minority, I suppose, saying, I like this thing, I'm not being a douche about it. We exist. It's fine. It's a curious thing. Uh, I'd be very interested to know if smaller niche market fandoms have such examples of militancy. I mean... Don't get me wrong, idiots get everywhere. There is no escaping mm. from them, that they, they, they just get there. Uh, you know, It's like mattresses and shopping carts that have just been dropped and abandoned. You'll find them everywhere in the most surprising yeah. places. But I, I just wonder, are there fundamentalist fans of Nine Men's Morris? <laughs> I don't even know what that is, but I would exactly. imagine so, yes. It's a very rewarding <laughs> and intuitive game. Yes, I recommend it to people. You know, it's, it's just... it's. I, I don't know. It's uh, look, I'm sure we haven't heard the last of this. I suppose it all boils down to fans being positive and fluffy doesn't sell news can't print. No. Fans being complete gits and saying horrible, nasty, hateful things does. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a shame that when fans go out and raise lots of money for charity and do good things, that doesn't get equal press coverage. It's a, it's I think a shame, sometimes I it does, but you do make a good point. It's, it's a matter of time, right? Because, I mean, Child's Play didn't exactly blow things apart until 
it didn't really blow a lot of minds, but nowadays it's it's large enough to be such a thing that like you know people are familiar with it. The running of the gnomes in World of Warcraft—that's you know fans coming together to raise money for for breast cancer vaccine research and you know things like the, that sort of stuff. And when when games are shutting down, WildStar is going to be gone by the end of this week, mm-hmm. and um, people are. Just, just the best and brightest of the community and the fans are coming out and celebrating and reminiscing and thanking Garbine Studios, uh, Lord of the Rings, Legendary Servers. There's a lot of people who are just, just so, so many people who are happy about this thing being a thing. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's even though it doesn't get mainstream press coverage, I think that doesn't necessarily devalue the benefits if it would be great if the press picked up on that stuff more sure yeah i mean i'd love to have more mainline uh mainstream coverage as opposed to like uh like the nbc news or bbc picking up on the fact that gamers are doing good shit as opposed to yeah definitely as opposed to the you know the hobbyist press where yeah it's, they're they're broadcasting the fact that this is happening, but then again, they're kind of it's still in the greater scheme of things a smaller market or people who are already invested in gaming in general, not not the not the mass population. But I think that's enough, really. The fact that there are a lot of good things coming out, there are enough good people coming together to say something or do something beneficial. That's it would it's that i think is a good enough i think that i feel that's a good enough consolation really yeah i agree and now moving on to the so-called surprise section of the show in spring 2017 lotro celebrated its 10th anniversary and contains moderate power intended to do a special show. I asked for contributions from Lotro players, and several people very kindly submitted some. Sadly, due to real-world problems, I was unable to finish producing that show, and it never aired. However, I was sent, as I mentioned, some very, very interesting segments that I thought... Now that Lotro seems to be finding its feet yet again and getting some traction within the MMO community, I thought it would be useful to utilise these recordings made by Lotro players. So here, for your edification, are some brief comments about Lotro and their personal association with the game from Braxwolf, Chris Froon and Bragg of Villia from the Light the Beacons podcast. Hello, Brian, Roger, and the rest of you moderately perilous heathens. As many of you know, Lotro was my first MMO, and I've got a lot of thoughts on the experiences that I had in that game over the three years or so that I played it. Um, And as I was getting this ready for Brian and Roger's podcast, I started scripting out, and I realized that I've got way too much content here to do audibly. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hit a couple highlights of my experiences with Lotro. And then I'm going to post the unabridged version that I wrote out here on my website as a blog post. So so Lotro was my first MMO and still probably my favorite MMO. And it was one of those things that 
I started playing very lightly and then got sucked into it more and more, as m- many people do. Although I didn't play it like for hours and hours at a time like a lot of folks do. I just played it over a very long period of time and got into a lot of um, extracurricular things as a result of being involved in Lotro, obviously. Um, I started up my own blog. I blogged at Lotro Players. I got into podcasting because of Lotro. Um, so it was kind of a gateway for me. Uh, the game itself... I really enjoyed being in Middle-earth. Uh, I loved um, the progression system. I loved feeling that my hero was becoming more powerful and earning skills all the time. This is stuff that was kind of new to me. I, I skipped over a whole generation of video games because I was involved in doing some console gaming with sports games and things like that when my kids were little. It was just easier than getting involved in some of these really, really deep RPGs and things like that. So a lot of this stuff was new to me. I hadn't done a lot of RPG playing or MMO playing up to this point. And obviously the the lore uh, around Lord of the Rings is probably as as good as you can get. It's pr- it's pretty much the gold standard for fantasy lore. So being that I was already familiar with the IP made it just a, a great jumping in point for me and I really liked that I could see these places that I'd read about and seen in in Peter Jackson's depiction of the Lord of the Rings films. Wanted to quickly also share probably the one memory that sticks out to me more than more than any other single part of the game. I wasn't really much of a much of a raider or anything like that. My, the kinship that I was in, we were moderately sized, but not big enough to do raiding on a consistent level, and probably not even good enough to do that. Um, but at one point, I was I was sitting in in landscape mode playing something, and um, got a tell from Rolf Crage, who you might remember from the Lotro Academy podcast. He was in my kin, and he said, "Hey, I, I'm I'm in a pug. We're trying to." to get the final boss of the rift down. And the rift was something that our kin had tried to do before. We were a little bit overleveled for it, but we could never really quite get past the final boss. Uh, at least not before we all got too tired <laughs> and had to go to bed. So I said, yeah, sure, I can help out. You need a couple other guys. Rolf pulled me in, and it was Rolf and I, and I don't remember if my wife got pulled into that one or not. I think it was just me and a bunch of people that we didn't know. And so we hammered away at this guy. The, the final boss in the Rift, if you're not familiar, is a Balrog. And it used to be the toughest raid in the game uh, when the game was Shadows of Angmar only. And we took down the Balrog. And it was an amazing thing. But the thing that made it really special for me was that I looked down in the uh, in the chat box and I noticed that my final blow is what had taken him down. <laughs> Some guy that they had just pulled in to help with the final boss and hadn't been there for the whole raid took down the Balrog, uh, obviously not by myself, but it was just kind of cool to know that I was the one who got the final shot on the guy. But as I started thinking about all of these these in-game experiences that I had and the nostalgia that I have around Lotro and, and the love I have for the game, it kind of struck me that uh, it's it's not, now that I don't play the game anymore, it's not the game that I miss. It's excitedly explaining a new discovery to my real-life friends that I used to play the game with at the very beginning. Or it's taking down a boss with my kinmates for the first time. Or it's bantering with the co-hosts of Lotro players, before, during, or after the podcast. Catching up with someone in kin chat. The things I miss about the game aren't really about the game at all. They're about the people who play the game. It's the people who make the MMO great, not the graphics not the size of the landscape, and not the dungeon design. It's the people. So, I guess in summary, thank you, Lotro, for being the medium through which I could meet and get to know all of these amazing people. In MMOs, the Holy Trinity tends to refer to DPS, tanking, and heals. But for me, Lord of the Rings Online hits a different Holy Trinity, community, IP, and story. 
In mid-2007, I dipped my toes into MMOs with World of Warcraft, but shortly afterwards, I discovered Lord of the Rings Online. As a lifelong Tolkien and Lord of the Rings fan, it was a no-brainer for me to try the game, and it didn't take long for me to decide this was a place and a game I wanted to be part of. Although many of the gameplay and systems in Lord of the Rings Online have become dated, the story remains top-notch, particularly the epic. Yes, there are still too many pick-up-the-nails, kill-ten rats, and go-gather poo quests, but there are just as many opportunities to explore Middle-earth with and apart from characters in the books. It is this aspect of the game that keeps me engaged even across multiple alts, as there are always quests or lines of text that I miss on one character, but I pick up on another. Much will be said about community when it comes to why people play and keep returning to Lotro, and I will not be one to disagree. The advent of social media and podcasting at the time I entered into MMOs led to more insight and enjoyment of the game than I would have imagined when rolling my first character. The time spent listening to and engaging with CSTM, Lotro Reporter, Through the Palantir, Mordor Bust, Contains Modern Peril, The Tolkien Professor, Beyond Boss Fights, Light the Beacons, etc. always felt worthwhile. Not just for understanding Lotro, but also for insight into how a game and IP could bring so many people from different parts of the world and walks of life together. One game to bring them all, one could say. I have taken breaks from Lord of the Rings Online, sometimes to try other games, sometimes to get away from gaming, when I found myself going down the rabbit hole slash time sink that many MMO players find themselves. But I have always come back. And when it is time for the service to close and my elf minstrel needs to head off into the west, I will do it without regret. Thanks, Lotro. Musings on the 10th anniversary of Lotro from Bragavilia. Gentlemen, I'm sure you have tons of material flowing in for this request, so I will try to keep it relatively short, but it's difficult not to wax both nostalgically and loquaciously on a subject so near and dear to my heart. Most of my most memorable moments in game revolve around firsts. My first truly dangerous quest in Arid Luin with no quest tracker following a vague compass direction off the beaten path for the first time, taking timorous steps, looking every which way for danger, not knowing what might lay beyond the trees or over the next hill. I still remember the specific quest, Old Bones, level 13, and the sheer thrill of it all. Soon thereafter, I joined a kin and was logging on every night and staying up way too late to try not to miss anything, of course. My first major instance was a Carm Dune rum, and though we did not have time to finish that night, Heck, it was a five-hour run back in the old days. We successfully raced against time to make it the top of Barishel's domain before the trolls could smash the bridges. I still have the picture of us at the top of Doom, proudly celebrating the acquisition of our ornate Great Keys. Looking out over the expanse of Doom below me, I was hooked. Perhaps my most memorable raid, as it was for many I imagine, was my first rift run. I joined the game after the heyday of the Rift when everyone had moved on to Moria and Rift runs were hard to come by. Harder still was to have one called out in World Chat where I happened to have a 3 plus hour window to play, which was basically never. One weekend my family left for an overnight at our in-laws and I sensed my chance. I sat down at my laptop feverishly at 8am and started calling out, 1 of 12 for the Rift, need a leader, which is the uh, universal clause that probably probably doomed me. But a few hours later, perhaps out of sheer pity, a group was formed and we made our way through one of the greatest game spaces I'd ever experienced. Something about the art style of those cavernous passages fired my imagination. I wanted to know who built those little palaces way up in the sides of the hills over the Colosseum, and why did they live there, of all places in Middle-earth? 
The final boss instructions were unintelligible to me, a noob who had never seen the space, and I forgot them almost completely anyway, the second the massive doors opened, and I saw Thorlock in all of his glory. Talk about a reveal. We did not beat the Balrog that day, but I would be back. My fascination with the setting of the Rift pre-augured my love affair with Moria, still the greatest game zone of any kind I have ever seen. I was never satisfied until I had done every quest indeed and knew every nook and cranny, which took years. Lastly, I will call out pressing the button in WordPress to publish my first ever podcast, which was as nerve-wracking as any in-game challenge I'd ever faced. 66 episodes later, I am still chugging along. I equate the evolution of my Lotro obsession to someone meeting the love of their life. When you first meet and are boyfriend and girlfriend, everything is new and exciting and she is all you can think about. Eventually a ring gets involved, <clears throat> and after you are married, the novelty wears off, and the relationship becomes much more comfortable and familiar. Many people move on to other games to try to recapture that magic, but it's very difficult to replicate that first love, and many return. The advanced stages of a Lotro relationship are still rewarding, obviously, but very different. It's a stage at which companionship can become much more important, which I think is why starting my podcast and engaging more with the community to share what I had learned and loved became a big part of my experience. Many thanks to you, Roger and Brian, for being part of that. Cheers, Brad Gavilia, proprietor of LightTheBeacons.com. And so ends another episode of the Contains Moderate Peril podcast. I'd like to thank my guests, Brian. Enjoyed it as usual. Jadia. Goodbye. And Wolfie. It's a pleasure to be here as always. And retrospectively, Braxwolf, Bragavilia, and Chris Froon for the belated Lotro anniversary contributions. So, Jadia, where can people find you? Where can they find your work? Where can people worship at your altar? Um, probably no altar worshipping, but mm. you can find me on Twitter at Jadia, that's J-A-E-D-I-A, and on um, dragonsandwhimsy.wordpress.com. Wolfie, where can Contains Moderate Peril listeners find you on social media? Where can they prostrate themselves in front of your talent? <laughs> I mean, if they're prostrating themselves, I hope it's because they picked up their cookie off the floor or something like that. Um, uh, I've been found at Wolfie's Eyes uh, on Twitter. I uh, am also a member of the Massively OP's uh, OPTB uh, broadcast, which can be found on Twitch at twitch.tv slash massively overpowered. I'll also be doing some writing for them here in about a month's time or so, if not a bit, not a bit sooner. Uh, my blog is uh, wolfieseyes.wordpress.com and I have my own personal Twitch streams every once in a while. It's a little intermittent at uh, twitch.tv slash wolfieseyes. Excellent, excellent, excellent. And you will be streaming soon with Jamie, won't you? On a combined endeavor. Indeed, yes. Myself and my husband are going to be doing our... Uh, oh, we, we've kind of done joint streams as Wolf and Fox and so we'll be uh, doing our own channel uh, of the same name at Twitch. Um, here pretty soon we'll be sure to follow me on and on twitter about all that superb we will promote that heavily on contains moderate peril it's thoroughly recommended it is most mirthful 
<laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. The Contains Moderate Peril podcast will return in a not too distant future with another episode. Until then, thanks very much indeed for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to Contains Moderate Peril. For more information, visit ContainsModeratePeril.com and follow us on Twitter at Moderate Peril. Let's sing a little song for Roger while he's away. Yeah, okay. There. To all the girls I've loved before. <laughs> Watch us be at the end of the program. <laughs> oh, fuck. I forgot he does that. Oh, yeah. <laughs>